Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Okay, welcome back, guys. We are doing sections 102 through 105 of the Doctrine and Covenants. So these sections are long. There is some, yeah, yeah. Th- this might be the longest reading for the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, I, I didn't go back and specifically count everything, but I compared it to some ones that I knew were long and it was longer. So <laughs> as I was reading through it, I kept thinking, yeah, hey, this, uh, well, I still have another section to go through. So this might be the longest reading. There's particularly section 102. There's probably not a whole lot for us to touch on in our discussion. But as we get into 103 through 105, we start getting into some uh, complicated church history, (laughs) to say the least. Uh, Controversial, often debated, uh, very much discussed. And uh, this gets into the topic of Zion's camp. And uh, so we're going to kind of discuss the the implications of that, um, the ambiguity surrounding it, um, even to this day, um, a lot of discussion about what it really meant, what the purpose was, what uh, the Lord intended, what Joseph intended, what the people who went intended, all those sort of things are kind of wrapped up in it. And um, it's it's kind of a difficult discussion because like I said, there's there's a lot of ambiguity there. It's hard to to really put your finger on exactly what is going on here in terms of trying to get like a consistent narrative between history and the revelations. Um, and so that that'll be uh, you know quite a discussion to have on that. But with section 102, this is one of the rare sections that the first word in the introduction is not revelation, right? It's so this section is not a revelation. It's minutes, minutes of a meeting. And basically, it's another type of constitution, so to speak, that discusses how councils are to be organized. Now, this council ends up kind of being the proto, proto first presidency slash Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, although the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles is not formed yet at this point. But it kind of becomes the the pattern for that going forward. And then also the pattern by which we currently have our stakes with uh, stake presidencies and, and high councils patterned after. And so for anyone that you know is, is interested in how historically that came about, again, the way that these are organized doesn't appear to be by any explicit revelation. You know, this section does say that the revelation is that they form it, but how it actually operates, there doesn't it doesn't appear to be a specific 
revelation on it. Rather, there was a council that convened and discussed and decided this is how they were going to do it. It is kind of curious and and brings up a lot of questions about what scripture really is. Why is this included in the Doctrine and Covenants if it's not a revelation? You know, certainly when we read scripture, we can identify certain things as revelation. You know, that's written in the voice of the Lord, and this is distinctly something coming from the Lord, whereas other things we read and we're like, okay, this this is scripture, but these are the words of a prophet in his own words, not necessarily quoting the Lord, right? So we kind of have have that distinction there in terms of what is revelation and what isn't, and both can be considered scripturally canonical. But to include the minutes from a meeting and then canonize it in the Doctrine and Covenants, I think is interesting, at least from a, from a Latter-day Saint perspective on how we approach scripture and view it as divinely inspired. So I'm not sure exactly how to categorize section 102. There's a few other sections in the Doctrine and Covenants that kind of fit alongside it, but uh, it's unique, kind of unique in that regard. Yeah, I, I'm actually thinking about doing a paper for one of my classes that I'm taking, one of my uh, my Mormon studies classes on the lectures on faith and about the decanonization mm. of the lectures on faith. And, and there's already articles that have been written about it, but you know they're mostly internal articles talking about the uh, the framework that the church has for possibly removing things out from our scriptural canon. And come to find out, we actually don't have anything really systematic <laughs> to, to be able to tell us how and why we do that. Um, there's been a few church historians that have written about it, and kind of the standing marching standard that we have came from, there was a guy doing his master's degree, and he had ended up writing a letter to Joseph Fielding Smith, who happened to have been on the committee. So the lectures on faith were a, a group of formal, seven formal lectures that were written to as the doctrine portion of the Doctrine and Covenants. So they were very much considered the, in the Doctrine and Covenants. They were the doctrinal portion. And they were included in the Doctrine and Covenants until 1921, when they were removed. And so a lot of people are like, why, why did we remove them? And, and this kind of gets to the question that you were talking about with 102. Because we have this interesting feedback from Joseph Fielding Smith, because he, he's on the committee, this master, this master student is doing his master's thesis, ends up writing Joseph Fielding Smith, asking him, you know, you are on the committee, why did they remove him? And, and so it, it was a famous reply. Now it's been made a famous reply because it's been written about so much. But Joseph Fielding Smith had said that th- there were four basic reasons. The first one was that it was not considered revelation at the time, or that, you know, this is not revelation that it has not really been formally adopted by common consent into to be included as quote-unquote scripture. And then number three and four basically dealt with lecture five, which the lectures on faith have a very interesting way of describing the Godhead, which is very Trinitarian. Mm-hmm. Describes God the Father as as a spirit, describes Jesus as being the Son because he is a tabernacle of flesh, and then describes the Holy Spirit, as, the Holy Ghost, as the unified mind of agreement between the Father and the Son. You know, this is very Trinity doctrine, and the fact that this is coming out in 1834, 1835, is really, it's a conversation in and of itself. But because of the uh, contention, or because of the, the questions that that would cause, that's why Joseph Fielding Smith said they removed it from the Doctrine and Covenants. And just dealing with the very first uh, 
issue here, though, is that they were not revelations. You know, historians have later written, I'm like, well, neither is section 102 or 134, but they're still in there, right? And then the, come to find out there's as many general authorities who have talked against the law of common consent being a necessary barrier to including something as canonized scripture as there are people who argue the other side of that. So, so there's no real congruity in in yeah. the church as far as we know, or as far as even scholars talk about, as far as what constitutes scripture as scripture or how and why we decanonize something. Um, but yeah, section 102 is an interesting framework. I mean, we can pull something out of it from an, administra- an administrative standpoint about how the church is structured and formalized, but there were a lot of these kinds of minutes from a lot of different kind of meetings doing the same thing. So why this one was considered so important is it's interesting. Yeah, why things get included in in and the canon and and not, you know, it's basically like whoever has the power to to get it on that printing press when they make the the triple combination, right? <laughs> <laughs> then, then that, uh, right. that you know, then all of a sudden it is de facto. It's there, you know. They throw the articles of faith in, <laughs> canonized, right? It's like you're canonized. Uh, you know, there's another, there's another example of of something that's like, well, how did how did exactly? And sure, there's a whole history on that. How did how did articles of faith get canonized? You know, those were just some like obscure letter. <laughs> and right. uh, that Joseph Smith wrote to somebody who wasn't even a member of the church, you know? So yeah, yeah. It, interesting uh, stuff there. I'm sure historians have really gone over all of that. And it's not really our, our purpose necessarily to, to delve into particularities of that, just to say that all of this is very nuanced and there's a lot probably written about it. And it makes section two one uh, unique in the sense that we can't necessarily explain it, by any particular standard, its existence in the Doctrine and Covenants. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, from, from you know, it goes through and describes uh, how these count- councils are to operate. Um, and uh, there's a couple things that, that stood out to me here. But uh, um, as I was reading through it, I, I was struck by, by verse 15, I'd have to say. So 15 uh, says, the accused in all cases has a right to one half of the council to prevent insult or injustice. So, <clears throat> so I thought this is an interesting prescription here that you, you have 12 counselors plus the three um, that preside at the council. So total of 15. And that, that half of those 12, six of them, um, would would be dedicated to making sure that the person who's accused is treated fairly, you know, is not insulted or unduly, um, you know, put upon. There's not injustice done and they are to speak out for that and make sure um, that's done fairly. How that ends up playing out in the real world, I, I don't know. You know, that might be something for a historian to to delve into, try to get through some of the minutes of, of early church councils and, and try to see how some of these patterns developed about this is what was prescribed and then this is thing how things actually went. Maybe some people have done that. That would certainly probably ruffle some feathers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also like here on verse 30 when it's talking about there's a distinction between the high council or traveling high priests abroad and the traveling high council composed of the 12 apostles in their decisions. This is where we're starting to also more formally distinguish the 12 apostles and the 70 in these councils as well. This is the time when that's becoming a new thing. Even up until Joseph's day, the 
The twelve apostles were given some administrative tasks, but they were largely still considered more of a formal missionary body that was going out as formal missionaries for the church. It's, it's really fascinating to see the evolution about how all these things came to be and when they came to be and why they came to be and what pressures were there. The church looks very much different. You know, I, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day and and it's it's very interesting to realize that in many ways and it's arguable you know it's I'm being overly simplistic here but it has been said that the church that we know today was very much the church of Brigham and that mm-hmm. if we were to you know had a time machine to go back to Joseph's day there you know there'd be a few things that we would recognize but the emphasis and the things they were doing and what they were looking at and the conversations and the things that were going on that the church that we know today is mostly the church of Brigham we read our Brigham lens when we read into Joseph. But it, it kind of takes a little bit of time for us to be able to kind of put aside the Brigham lens to see Joseph for himself. What comes out as that is, is a little bit of a different story than what we would typically maybe talk about him in Sunday school, um, because we typically use the hermeneutic of Brigham to be able to analyze Joseph, because that's what we're used to. And, and we tend to think that this is what Joseph was getting at, this is what Joseph was implying, this is what Joseph was thinking, and... It's just different than that. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just it means that there, it, there's differences there. And so when we start to see the formation here in the 18, you know, 1834, 1835, as these quorums are starting to come into a different way of being, and even up until 10, almost 10 years later with uh, in Nauvoo, it's interesting that evolution of revelations that come in and of just kind of how they reasoned themselves into these new ways of being, which is it's a fascinating history. Well, nobody was president of the church longer than Brigham Young, so his <laughs> his fingerprints being on things is, isn't too surprising. Yeah, yeah. There have been several presidents of the church that have definitely left their mark. You know, I would say that uh, a lot of the structure and way that the church operates in the world right now, you'd be heavily influenced by how David O. McKay went about stuff. So, so there's a lot there, a lot of uh, influence in terms of church operation and structure and stuff from Gordon B. Hinckley. Uh, we can see that uh, Russell and Nelson is is making some of those administrative changes as well. So definitely Brigham Young would be um, the one that w- would have been most influential historically for a bunch of reasons, if for nothing else, the fact that he was president way longer than any other president of the church. So, <laughs> and, and also a lot of scholars talk about uh, Max Weber, who's a famous sociologist who ended up writing a book that uh, contextualized why religions come about. Max Weber was one of the, the first mm-hmm. like godfathers of sociology, and he was writing to try to analyze how new religious movements start. And so if anyone has ever heard about the charismatic leader, or about how leaders are charismatic when they start new religions, that comes from Max Weber. And so in this charismatic leader is someone who is very much a people person who people see themselves with, who who attracts people, who unifies and brings people together. They're the ones that religiously usually either reveal some kind of ancient knowledge that has been lost or brings out brand new information that has never been made known before or some combination of the two. Happens in, in every successful new religious movement that that very first person when they come in and they start this religious movement is the charismatic leader and so max weber has analyzed all of these these religions all over the world to see that the very first person that comes up is the charismatic one but it's really not the charismatic one that really determines whether or not the religion is going to succeed or fail it's always the second to market it's always the second leader 
The second leader is the one who actually determines whether or not the movement lives or fails. And that one is what he calls the priest. And whereas the charismatic one was, you know, there's some administration there that that's never really their focus. Their focus is mostly on the big ideas of the matter. But the priest, the priest is all about the structural integrity. And so the priest is usually very militant, very by the book, very legally minded, iron fisted most of the time, recommitting not just to the big idea, but to the institution that has been created. And so there's fidelity and loyalty to the institution, not just to the people or to the idea. And so there's a lot more that's being brought down into that institution. And so there's a lot that's been written about Brigham Young being that priest figure right? Mm -hmm. Because his personality, that priest personality, is what defines the way that the entire mechanism was created. Joseph Smith comes in and reveals this whole new, this new thing, and then Brigham Young cements it into the institution itself. And then Mm -hmm. all the subsequent prophets after that work within the institutional framework of Brigham. As you said, like, like uh, David McKay is a great example. You know, he's the one who ushers in what's what Gregory Prince. He's a a famous historian who actually wrote David McKay's official biography. He deems as the the rise of uh, modern Mormonism, and this modern Mormonism is very much this kind of from the night, end of the World War II until American corporate Mormonism, where every, all of a sudden everybody's wearing this this uh, missionaries are going out with the that the missionary cut, you know, white shirts, ties, name tags. <laughs> <laughs> end of the beard, right? End of the beards, that whole thing. And each prophet will have things that they change, but it's like Brigham built the Titanic and the other subsequent prophets have kind of rearranged the deck chairs. Sure. Right? And so it's, it's kind of one, kind of one of those things. So, so there's flavoring, there's changes of the administration, there's some add ons. Maybe you put in a brand new engine. I don't mean that the church is going to sink. I didn't mean to like give it a Titanic vibe. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, the church is going to go down. No, I didn't mean to do that. So, Dang it, bad it's, analogy. Uh, <laughs> I I just know that I just know the uh, the adage in my head is like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Because sure. you just you're just rearranging the the things on top. But uh, yeah, yeah it, section one or two definitely has a very a very great place there uh, as far as the church's organization and, and what Joseph was trying to do. And Brigham Young's definitely going to have his own say in how that uh, goes forward. Yeah. I think the only other thing in section 102 that I want to point out was verse 23. It says, in case of difficulty respecting doctrine or principle, if there is not a sufficiency written to make the case clear to the minds of the council, the president may inquire and obtain the mind of the Lord by revelation. And so uh, to me, this, this was more just like a, this was more a personal type of, um, imperative, you know, that, uh, just to remind me that, that as an individual, I have the ability, if there's not a sufficient understanding of my study of the gospel or, or experience, if I don't have enough there to go on in any given life situation, that's, that's where a revelation comes in. That's where I need to go seek revelation. And, uh, I have that right as an individual to seek that. That is is pretty foundational, fundamental to the narrative, the entire, what would you say, underlying principle that we harp on so much with the restoration of the gospel is this concept of personal revelation, that people can go to God and get an understanding of something that they can't get from anywhere else. 
And that in and of itself, I think, is really core to the Latter-day Saint tradition. And that has ebbed and flowed and waxed and waned from time to time. Starting way back with the narrative of the first vision, that's kind of it, right? And so I see that kernel, that principle, that thread, that theme woven throughout all kinds of scripture and uh, history and just Latter-day Saint, if not culture, experience. So, Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Moving into section 103, last week we talked a little bit about the history about the Missouri persecutions. And so not to go too much into that to take up time, but to reiterate a little bit that the number, the Missourians were not expressly, there were people who hated the Mormons because they thought that they had a weird and a, you know, religious zealots. And, and, and you're, you know, you're going to have that regardless of who you are and where you're at. Um, there's some people who think that the Southern Baptists are religious zealots, right? And, and they just, you know, people have that kind of reputation. But most most of the hatred that came to the Mormons was far more political and economic than religious. And when the Latter-day Saints moved into the region, by the time that all this stuff started going down in 1833, there were, what, 1,200, maybe 1,300, 1,400 Latter-day Saints who were living in Jackson County, which that was a really big voting block. That was a really big, powerful entity to really sway county politics. So if you can imagine being on a frontiersman really ingrained with the whole spirit of 1776 that you know your frontiersmen your rugged individualism all of this is going on and you're trying to cut out your own kingdom out of the wilderness and all of a sudden these religious zealots move in drop your property values and claim that you're ignorant backwoods uh, yokel who who's going basically to hell and that they're the ones who are the, you know god sent them there and that uh, they're there on god's command and they're going to build up and that basically the whole new new jerusalem is going to be there in this frontier area and join us or get out of the way join us or yeah join us or get out of the way kind of a vibe and not only that but they're bringing in canadians they're they're bringing in a foreign invasion you know kind of an invasion and like we talked about with uh ww phelps with the paper he he wasn't being overtly uh, he wasn't trying to really promote this point, but it was interpreted that he was calling on all slaves and calling for abolitionism and the free you know freedom of the slaves and to bring slaves into the community. And Missouri was a slave state, and he had a lot of people who were pro-slavery at the time. And so W. W. Phelps couldn't walk back on that fast enough, and he kind of swung the pendulum to the complete opposite side. But the damage had been done, and so economics, politics, immigration, perception, slavery was at play. These were the really big hot button issues that the Jackson County Missourians had kicked the saints out and why they were doing that. And, and so that's really kind of important because we see Joseph Smith and the, and the Latter day Saints as also seeing themselves as the embodiment of the American Republic. They were also trying to have this freedom of religion, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom to be able to practice and do what you want to do. They really become a test case about the American Republicanism to show that American Republicanism has had its limits. That freedom really did have a cultural vibe to it, that it wasn't doing whatever you wanted as long as you didn't infringe upon somebody else's rights, that there were just contingencies that people deemed as right or wrong and culturally viable that were not, um, that were not acceptable. And we know, so we see that later on with, especially with polygamy, um, Joseph Smith's polygamy and, and Nauvoo polygamy and going into, uh, what Brigham Young and how Brigham Young carried that out into Utah. 
But here we see these narratives still coming in where the Missourians see an invading army and they see the Mormons as a political economic threat to their stability. And so in kicking them out, this wasn't religious purging. This was the spirit of 1776. And so while the Mormons are also uh, deeming the Missourians as mobs, the Missourians are deeming the Mormons as mobs. And, right. and also, and, and I think, I think we, we said it last week, but also just for consistency this week. Legally, there's, there were three classifications because they didn't have a standing army at the time. They, they had a legal classification as a mob, which was a, basically a marauding gang with no authority of any kind that just went around and enforced its own will. Then you had this second tier called vigilantes. And vigilantes were basically immediate responders to real existential, cultural, social, political threats. Um, like an invasion of an army, be, uh, to assemble themselves immediately under the authority of your own, your own rational self-defense until the government had time to put together regular militia. And then at the time where the governor and, and the, they could actually call out regular militia, then vigilanteism would be brought up under the militia and then the militia would take over. But it was, it was, the vigilantism was ratified ex post facto, you know, like you raise your group of vigilantes and just like objectively, it could be a mob or vigilantes. It isn't until it's ratified legally after the fact that it gets deemed one or the other. Yeah, yeah, it, it, that that's a, that is an element there, and that's one of those uh, those one of those elements. And so, until it is deemed ex post facto, um, everybody's seeing each other as a mob. So the 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 Latter Day Saints see themselves as vigilantes until they get the cl the clarification as being actual militia, and the Missourians see themselves in the exact same way as vigilantes who are expelling a an invading religious zealot uh, movement coming into its country. Because statism, you know, just this the the idea of the state being its its own nation prior to the Civil War was still a thing. You know, mm -hmm. United States identity wasn't really the thing. What when people talked about the United States, they, they said the United States are not the United States is. And so that that distinction mm -hmm. there was a mental distinction after the war after the Civil War. States' rights ended up taking a a major chunk out of you know states' rights and what states can do. And that's when it became more the United States is. In this time, it was the United States are. So they consider themselves as independent nations. And Missouri was its own independent nation. That's why we're even going to see You were a Missourian first before you were, you know, a citizen of the United States. Right, exactly. And so the spirit of 1776 as a national identity codified what this meant to be a Missourian. And so they were kicking out the Mormons who were an invading threat, just like the they kicked the British out who were no longer a part and didn't belong. So it doesn't justify what they did, but it just puts it in context that it wasn't just an irrational hatred of the religion that was really driving and motivating mm -hmm. this. Right. You know, we, we often portray in our, in our recounting of these or movies or, or whatever, that it's just, you know, uh, a bunch of drunken, uh, poorly groomed hillbillies that, <laughs> that just, you know, threw they were, out. They and, were and probably really badly they groomed. They were poorly hillbillies. groomed and they were probably <laughs> drunken, but, but yeah. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't just bloodlust. Uh, you know, there was other stuff going on with it. You, you know, section 103, as I, as I was reading through it, I, uh, it's just ambiguous. You know, some of the following sections get this as well. We really 103, 104, and 105 kind of jump around and, and it's really hard for me to put my finger on, on exactly a, a, a consistent 
attitude and message here. You can, like you, if you take all the sections as a whole, it's almost like you can decide, okay, this is the lens. This is how I want to interpret this. And if you decide this is how you want to interpret it, then you can take that and run through it and it, and it sort of makes sense. Or if you, you know, decide another way. And I kind of came up with about three different ways that you could kind of run through these sections. And, and it was each one could be somewhat consistent. Even then, you know, there's, there's just so much ambiguity in how this is, a lot of these things are posited. And I couldn't help but feel like the, a little bit of, of Joseph's anger kind of seeping through here, right? His, his frustration with what's going on in Missouri and, um, you know, both with the, the membership of the church there, who he feels isn't really doing what they're supposed to be doing. And then also with the, the enemies, right? The, the, the other settlers there aren't members of the church who are, are persecuting, uh, from their point of view. And so, um, you, you kind of see that a little bit here. It, there's a lot of these moments where it says things that are sort of inflammatory, almost like it's hinting at some sort of, uh, of violence. Um, but it stops short of, of actually like explicitly calling for something. There are explicit calls for peace, but there's not these explicit calls for violence. You're always left wondering, like, how is it that the the saints viewed these revelation? And was there a common, um, you know, a common interpretation? Or did you have different people viewing these in different ways? Or was it just that these were these revelations were received, and then they were largely interpreted by a few people um, how they wanted to see them, and then that's the way that the general membership of the church basically took it. I don't know. There's there's different ways to go with this here. There's lots of things in here that stand out to me. So let's go over here to verse fifteen. It says, Behold, I say unto you, the redemption of Zion must needs come by power. And it's like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> what power? <laughs> and there's sort of the the objective part of me or, or that that knee-jerk reaction part of me that's like, okay, power. So so you mean like we're gonna march in there and we're gonna tell them, you know, who's boss and we're gonna take what's ours. And then you think, okay, well, if this is the Lord speaking and we're trying to define what's going on by how the Lord sees power, then this is something different. Therefore, I will raise up unto my people a man who shall lead them like as Moses led the children of Israel. Well, you know, Moses never really led the children of Israel into battle. That was Joshua after him. But that wasn't really Moses' thing, right? He crossed the, the Red Sea, and then the Lord parts it. He takes care of the Egyptians. You know, everything that Moses is doing is he's leading the people, and the Lord's kind of protecting him. He's providing for them. He's, he's fighting their battles for him and everything like that. And so to invoke Moses here is kind of a, an interesting um, illusion in context of this word power, right? 
So here, verse 17, for you are the children of Israel and of the seed of Abraham, and you must needs be led out of bondage by power and with a stretched out arm. And and as your fathers were led at the first, even so shall the redemption of Zion be. So there are these constant allusions to these Old Testament cases of let out of bondage or restored to their land of their inheritance. Um, we had that discussion about Ezra a couple times, coming back to the land and building it back up. Early saints and Joseph Smith is definitely conceptualizing his people as as sort of the the um, successors to this this Old Testament legacy of a people who's persecuted and kicked out or kept in bondage and and the Lord is going to protect them and bring them back like they're the chosen people right and so we definitely see that that forming much more strongly here but but it's really hard to put my finger on on what it is that Joseph really thought about these revelations and what he, what attitude he was trying to convey to the saints Do, was there a moment where he he really felt some anger and felt like this justified some violence or or was that simply like rhetoric that was used in in a metaphorical way um like i said i I think it's a little hard to put my finger on and and that's what makes it even more difficult to explain so yeah i think you brought up a lot of really great points there uh yeah prior to sitting down here tonight i was reading rereading the Zion's Camp portion of Richard Bushman's section on in Rough Stone Rolling. Really great book. If, if anyone hasn't read it, I, I highly suggest it. Um, I read it a couple times. I've read it. Uh, I listened to it on Scribd. Um, you can listen to it on double time and get through it. <laughs> you don't have to take 20 hours to listen to it. It's not super long. Yeah. So here in uh, the Zion's Camp, I, I like how Bushman was, you know, he talks about exactly what you're bringing up too, Ben. It's this concept of the ambiguity because you know, the revelations, he says, don't explain how the saints are supposed to respond to violence. You know, the Book of Mormon, yeah, it has a very highly vigorous militaristic flavor to it and militarism with Captain Moroni, but it also has really extreme cases of pacifism. And David Pulsifer from, uh, from BYU-Idaho, who just, who, he's just co-authoring a book right now with, with, uh, Patrick Mason up at Utah State, and it'll be coming out through Deseret Book here probably in the next six months. But it's the, the nonviolent treatment of the Book of Mormon, showing that the Book of Mormon is a nonviolent treatise. And and I'm like, man, if you can make Captain Moroni <laughs> look like a nonviolent warrior, like how can you make the Book of Mormon a nonviolent treatise, right? And I thought the same thing about Preston Sprinkle when he wrote Fight, a Christian case for nonviolence about the Old Testament. But but anyway, the the Latter Day Saint, uh, I was what I was getting at is David Pulsifer had written an article showing the Church's evolution in how it approaches and interprets the anti Nephi Lehi's. And we talked a little bit about oh, yes. this when we recorded that uh, that segment, but we we've had multiple multiple evolutions in how we've looked at it. And in fact, the way that we really look at it now and we interpret it now in our church hist- our church handbooks really comes back to there was one man who was appointed in the correlation department who happened to be the same guy who ended up bringing the ROTC onto BYU campus post World War II. And it completely revolutionized and rewrote how we see the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Prior to World War II and to this guy putting into the correlation department how we see the anti-Nephi-Lehi's as basically a one-off, that their, their, their pacifism was not a standard, it was simply just a covenanted... It was a condition of the covenant. 
not not something not something objectively desirable in and of itself. Right, right, and and that's not how we've always interpreted it. In fact, prior to their prior to that, all throughout the last of the 1800s and into the early 1900s, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's were seen as the standard of the Book of Mormon, and not just as a relegated portion of just what a committed people can do. And so when we look at uh, Joseph Smith in these days, they also had a lot of early conversions from from Mennonites and from Quakers and from, from people who were staunch, what we would call today, peace churches or, or nonviolence churches. And so there's definitely that flavor going into it. Plus, we just have regular Christians who don't really think that they should be redeeming Zion with blood. They've read the Revelations. Patrick Mason, I've heard him say a couple times now that it may have done Joseph some good to even reread some of the Revelations that he had been given in some of his rhetoric, (laughs) because he gets to be pretty... uh, pretty uh, impassioned on some of his violent rhetoric. And and then he, he... B- both both Joseph and Brigham Young, and Brigham Young's really impassioned when he becomes the leader of the church, and he has some really violent rhetoric, but th- they never really amount to the level of the violence of their rhetoric. And in fact, Zion's camp becomes one of those experiences. So we have this really interesting moment in church history where they don't know how to respond to violence because they've never really had to. You know, the church is still only three, four years old. Joseph's around 28 years old. So he's not a highly experienced person. He, Joseph, we know is already, you know, he, he, he's pretty even keel, but he can definitely have a temper. He can definitely explode. And, you know, and, and he'll apologize when and where he feels he needs to apologize and he'll rebuke when and whoever he feels he needs to do that as well. And so you have this leader who is doing the best that he can, but are we really trying to aim for some kind of militarism or are we trying to be pacifist? You know, what kind of church are we? Zion's camp really starts with that. So, yeah, we end up with this really ambiguous language in section 103 because we have highly militaristic, highly violent-sounding rhetoric that comes right to the point of violence, but it never crosses the threshold. So just like what you pulled out from section uh, from verse 15, that Zion has to be redeemed by power. And then again, we read in verse 25, Whosoever you curse, I will curse, and you shall avenge me of mine, mine enemies. But we're never told how vengeance comes about, Right. You know, so is that coming about through fighting? Because Zion's camp, you know, they ended up marching the thousand or almost 2,000 miles that they did. They were marching 25 to 40 miles a day and and getting down there. And it was a really fast march. They were supposed to get, uh, you know, we read in section 103 that Joseph was commanded to get uh, up to 500 men. Um, the Lord would be satisfied with 300, but if, if only 100 men signed up that uh, that they were going to cancel the operation, they wouldn't redeem Jackson. Um, they ended up with 200, and many of those were women and children who ended up coming along for uh, to kind of help out on some other things in the camp. So, a lot of a lot of really impassioned, near violent rhetoric here. But we also have section 98 about renouncing war and proclaiming peace. We have this displaced people, and that really gets us into section 104 because section when. The early saints are asking God, you, you told us to go down there and settle Jackson County and, and this is going to be the new Jerusalem. And, and now we're being kicked out. And you can see that there's just even Bushman comes in as like Joseph, you can see is very confused. He, he's not, he's not doubtful, but very confused as to like what, uh, what is going on here? 
and so some of the some of the blame uh, almost actually all the blame <laughs> is then laid on at the feet of the Missouri Saints for the failure of the United Firm. And we, we talked a couple weeks ago about the United Firm and this whole United Order thing because the in our scriptures we've been told our whole lives about this United Order thing that that was the economic principle that that was the financial principle of Zion that that was the whole order by which God is going to run his economy. But with the Joseph Smith Papers project and with some things we found out in the last 20 years, we now know that the United Order, like we knew it before, is not actually a thing. That it was a basically a mercantile that where people would pool all of their resources, that everybody would bring all of their personal property in and sign it over to the mercantile, over to this what they called the United Firm. And then the church would then give them back their property as a stewardship um, and so basically then the church would take that ledger showing that they had assets with, with this property now, then they would take that and be able to borrow against it and actually get real money. Then they would have money to, to buy properties, to buy land, to do what they need, to invest, to, to do whatever they needed to do. Right. And so this was how they were trying to do it. But there were a lot of people who didn't trust the system. They didn't sign over their property. You know, that they kept the property in their own private name. And so section 104 becomes really apparent and, and a lot of things become clear when we start to realize that the two things that we learn in section 105 about the section 104 is that the reason why Joseph says that the saints lost Jackson County was because they weren't taking care of the poor and they weren't unified. And hence, the United Firm failed. And so basically, 104 becomes the section where the Lord says, this whole United Firm thing, you're, ne- you're no longer beholden to it. And so you don't have to organize yourselves to it. You don't have to behold to it. It's over. So section four is basically the end of the United Firm. So I'm going to say, uh, I want to touch on a few more things from 103, and then and then I'll get to where you're going with 104. <laughs> um, <laughs> Do it. So... So yeah, there, there's definitely these things in 103, you know, uh, the Lord says, avenge me of mine enemies unto the third and fourth generation. And then it's immediately followed with, with these statements like this in 27 and 28, let no man be afraid to lay down his life for my sake. For whoso layeth down his life for my sake shall find it again. And whoso is not willing to lay down his life for my sake is not my disciple. And this can be taken in, in multiple ways, which happens in these sections here. So I think the operative word here, lay, is something that, that somebody does voluntarily, right? And that's a very, that's a very peaceful action to lay something down. The Book of Mormon constantly uses this phrase in sort of laying down your weapons of war, right? So like laying down your life is something that you put at the feet of your enemy. It's it's uh, an imperative of Christ where we are acquiescing not to the the violent demands of our enemy but to bringing out the the grace and the mercy that might exist there in that relationship. So this is mostly brought out in the narrative of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's where they literally go out and and lay themselves down. They're laying their lives down. Um in order to 
as a witness, as a testimony, which is what it says back in verse 24. It says, after these testimonies which ye have brought before me against them, ye shall curse them. So again, we've got this ambiguity here back and forth between something that is supposed to be this like peaceful way of relating to your neighbors who you might be in conflict with, and then doing these things like uh, avenging me of mine enemies. And then we we switch back to to some rhetoric that comes up in 105. Like I said, you can kind of choose where you want to go with this. And I think maybe that was the point at the time was that this is almost like a litmus test. Like, here's this, how are you going to view it? And we've said many times, you know, what how we view God says a whole lot more about us than it does God. How is it that we view these imperatives from God. Going to view them through the lens of Christ, of love for our fellow beings, or are we going to view them through a lens of of a little more militant aspect where we got to get ours, right? This is our property. We have to defend it. And and uh, we're more interested in, in that type of uh, type of narrative of property than we are in terms of redemption for our fellow men. Back over in verse 12 of section 103. For after much tribulation, as I have said unto you in a former commandment, cometh the blessing. This stood out to me this time because I was looking at the word after, and I think that we might tend to to look at this scripture as a cause and effect type of thing, right? So like the tribulation then brings about the blessing, right? The cause is the tribulation and then the effect is the blessing. And I remember back in, uh, you know, some of the philosophy classes that I took that uh, we talked about cause and effect often being one of sequence that we often infer a cause and effect from a sequence. If something happens and then after that thing happens, another thing happens, we often infer that the second thing is an effect of the first thing, but that that isn't necessarily the case. And so I look at this verse here. It says, For after my tribulation, as I have said unto you in a former commandment, cometh the blessing. I don't think that it necessarily has to be a causal relationship here. I think we're talking about a path, a journey, and that so often in our life, on the path, on a journey, we're going to go through times of tribulation. And after those times of tribulation, we're going to be able to see the blessings. Not that the blessings weren't didn't exist before, but that we then see them. And so our eyes are opened after the fact. We encounter those blessings sort of along that path. And so again, something happens after the other, but it's simply a revealing of that way that we are are traveling rather than the fact that one this thing happened on the path and then that thing happened on the path doesn't mean that the first thing that happened on, to us on the path caused the second thing, right? Did I explain that way overly? I followed it. I liked it. (laughs) And it might be, you know, sort of a a trite point, but just the the word after stood out to me there. And so I I thought that um, 
that had meaning to me. You know, that often in life, we look for the reasons that things happen. Why did this happen to me? You know, well, it must have been caused by this or caused by this. And, you know, a lot of things that happen in life don't necessarily have a cause per se. Um, sometimes they're just part of life. They are part of our experience and part of our journey. But the Lord tells us here after those experiences that may be what we call tribulation or unpleasant experiences, we will be able to see the blessings. Tribulation isn't something that is, is eternal, right? Yeah, I think you had a lot of really good things to touch on there about laying down, or verse 27, let no man be afraid to lay down his life for my sake. I always remember this one quote. It's attributed to, to General Patton. Um, well, it's not a, it's not a direct quote, but there's one person who had quoted him as giving a speech during, uh, during the war. We said, no bastard ever won a war by dying for his country. He won it by making some other poor dumb bastard die for his. Hmm. And so it's this idea that, and, and, and there's a website that I go to and it has dozens of citations to, to American military literature about this same concept. That the whole idea is not to die for your country, but to be a survivor and to make someone else die for his. And so I, I think it's really fascinating here to take that militaristic idea of how you win by killing the enemy and by making the enemy die for his cause. And it turns that on its head. And it turns that secular, or you could say that civic religious, because there's very much that religious identity is formed in the exact same way that civic identity is formed. They're formed in the exact same way, with the same myths, the same narratives, the same suffering sacrifice narratives, the same calls to virtues. There's nothing different between the two and how the two are formed. So our civicness very much is deemed a religion. In fact, the very first guy who really, is it J.H. Carlton? Um, man, if you would have asked me six months ago, I would have been able to give you everything. But the very first guy who ends up coining the phrase nationalism and really becomes the godfather of the concept of nationalism, the book that he writes on it is Nationalism, a Religion. And he thinks it's a public virtue. He's all for it. But nationalism was originally even constructed that it was a religion. As much as your, your Sunday religion or Christianity or Judaism or Islam, that your feelings and what has been deemed as, as this euphoric feeling of togetherness um, of our civic pride and our civic unity is a religion. And so when you take that civic religion and the militaristic component of that, and then you compare it to what's being told here, that let no man be afraid to lay down his own life for my sake, and whoso layeth down his life for also for my sake shall find it again, and whoso is not willing to lay down his life for my sake is not worthy of to be my disciple. That's not talking about being going out and defending yourself and to killing the other. That's, that's being willing to die yourself. That's more of a call for martyrdom than it is a call for killing the enemy. Right. I mean, when we compare that against the actual militarism and the language and the rhetoric of militarism of the secularist, kind of the more secular, civic-minded, religious narratives, this is a completely different thing. Then when we come back here into, I like what you brought out about tribulations, this is something to add to that as well is, I know certain people who have framed that tribulation in their lives 
is basically their testimony that they're on the right path. Mm-hmm. It's like they almost target fixate on going into tribulation and persecution because they think that validates their discipleship. And coming around and being inculcated so much from that in my younger life, it's been really hard for me. It's one of those things I've had to deconstruct a lot. And it's not to show that the prosperity, because a lot of the times that's juxtaposed in contradiction of what was called the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel is that God wants us all to be filthy rich and to succeed and to grow and to have <laughs> to have a rich and abundance and everything. And, and that's the manifestation of God. And that's not it either. It's this false dichotomy. It's not that if you're, if you're living a life of persecution where you're persecuted, then, you know, you're overcoming that Satan's working hard on you and you're overcoming it. That's not it. And it's not this, this prosperity gospel over here on the other side either. There's this other way that we're being called into. And I love the way that you put that of that through things that we deem as tribulations and persecutions, when we, when we bring God into that narrative and bring God into that story, bring God into that moment, and we realize that God is suffering with us in that moment, that there comes an awareness that, you know, we've talked about this a, a, a dozen times before. There comes that awareness that we're not going through this alone. That the awareness is, is that through those tribulations, when we wait upon God and we bring God into that, come into an awareness of a really, really big God and my experience, my experience with that is that what I thought was a tribulation before is no longer deemed or seen as a tribulation. It's an experience. It doesn't mean that it's not real. It doesn't mean that it was unpleasant. It doesn't mean that if I experience it again or I continue to experience it, it's not, it's not unpleasant, but it's not a tribulation. It's not a persecution. It's just an experience. It's an experience. And I can experience that with God without having to throw a lot of meaning and other things on top of that, which usually end up just kind of perpetuating the whole thing anyway. <laughs> so anyway, I, I took my own long time with that. <laughs> no, I, so it brings up that point there. I, it, we've talked about this a few times and in some of the previous sections, it brings up, you know, if all things will work together for your good. And that's part of it here. These experiences we have that we we can deem as traumatic, horrible, undesirable in every sense of the word in, in our life right now. God has the power to take the sting from those, to take the trauma out of those experiences, such that, like you just said, they simply become experiences. And in that way, they are for our good. And again, you know, that's a very difficult point to try to hit in just the right way. Because I'm not, I'm not saying that it's good for us to experience trauma. What I'm saying is that it's good for us to experience that the love of God can make anything can make can heal anything can touch anything in our life and bring good 
because of who he is and who we are. Back to the um, the verse about laying down life. You know, you brought up that, and I realized as you were talking about it that you know, sort of that civic religion is that the sacrifice that happens in that civic religion is the sacrifice of our enemy, right? And what Christ calls us to is the opposite. He calls us to sacrifice ourselves. That is our false self in a metaphorical sense to him. But in a very real sense, you know, he sacrificed himself rather than his enemy. And this reminds me of the discussion that we had when we talked about the war chapters in Alma. And there's this verse in there. I, I, I wrestled with for a time. And when it kind of finally hit me, what this concept of the shedding of blood really was talking about was, was about us, not about our enemies. Not the sacrificing of our enemies, but ourselves. When we look at this through the lens of Christ, it, the meaning exploded for me. Whereas before it was like, supposedly, you know, this obvious, straightforward meaning that was very one-dimensional, quite frankly. When I turned that around, all of a sudden the meaning exploded for me really connected to so many different things. It was meaningful for me enough that I want to reread um, what I said at the time because I, I had written it down previously. So the scripture is from Alma 4347, and it says, And again the Lord has said that ye shall defend your families even unto bloodshed. Therefore for this cause were the Nephites contending with the Lamanites to defend themselves and their families and their lands, their country and their rights and their religion. This scripture is often brought up as a counterpoint to the path of testimony of nonviolence. Here are a couple of thoughts I have had on it. So this, let me digress here just a second. This is important in context of these scriptures that we're reading in section 103, because I think the early saints, when they're reading this, could have taken this multiple ways. They could have taken these verses and said, oh, lay down our life. That means I'm supposed to go grab my musket and I'm supposed to march there with science camp and I'm supposed to shoot my enemy. And if I get killed in the process, it's fine as long as I take somebody with me, right? That's the soldier's creed, right? Turn back to what I was saying with uh, the scripture out of Alma. Nowhere can I find that the Lord actually said this anywhere in the scriptures other than this statement, which appears to be a commentary by Mormon. It also appears that he is citing it as one of the main reasons that the Nephites thought it expedient to take up arms against the Lamanites. Thus, it serves to reason that this statement comes from some revelation available to the Nephites before the time of Captain Moroni, or at least this is what Mormon thought about it at the time he was writing this. It is possible that this is not an actual revelation from the Lord, but merely a cultural religious axiom that was had among the people akin to, I never said it would be easy, I only said it would be worth it. But here's my second point about this, this statement in Alma. Taken at face value, the statement, defend your families even unto bloodshed, is not necessarily a call to violence. Mormon seems to interpret it that way. But if it is indeed a revelation, it is just as likely, and in my opinion more likely, given the host 
of other scriptural support and context that this statement is not a command from the Lord for his people to shed blood. It is instead a declaration that in standing as a witness of him in defense of our families, it may be required for their own blood to be shed. I think there is ample evidence to support this interpretation more so than the conventional one. Consider that Alma tells his people at the waters of Mormon to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places that you may be in, even until death, that you may be redeemed of God and be numbered with those of the first resurrection, that you may have eternal life. The words until death don't simply mean stay faithful until you get old and die, but also even if it means your death, because after all, you are redeemed of God and partake in the resurrection. So what is death? Consider how Gideon dies at the hand of Nehor, testifying of Christ. Consider Abinadi. Consider the Antinephi-Lehi's. Consider the repentant people of Ammonihah. The list can go on, but to me the evidence that testimony and defense unto bloodshed is more about your own blood than the blood of your enemies is overwhelming. This is because, most importantly, we have the example of Christ himself. When he comes to the people, he has them drink his blood, which was shed for them. This is in contrast to the common practice of the wicked to swear to drink the blood of their enemies. Christ's blood was shed in one sense for in our defense, the defense of his family, that is, all who take upon themselves his name. This view of this simple statement in Scripture, when taken in context of a testimony of Christ, becomes at once a powerful witness of who he is and who we are. You know, we probably talked about 103 too long at this point. (laughs) I just want to say again to this that when we read these sections and we come across verses like this, even verses that port to encourage us to, to be violent or whatever, that we really step back and take a look at them through the lens of Christ. And don't be so quick to interpret them that way or be more, um, be more merciful in how we look at the early saints and their struggling with these things and coming to terms with how they were really supposed to proceed in light of everything that they thought was important, you know, being lost to them. So, you know, as soon as you had said, you, you had come back to those verses, <laughs> those verses, and you'd mentioned something you'd, you had uh, said or written before. I was like, I hope he's talking about that. That <laughs> I hope he's talking about that. And then you were talking about that. I, I, I that's one of the, my, my favorite things that you've written. And I love listening to it every single time. Um, it really just, I don't know. It's it's one of those few things that uh, that really puts the Book of Mormon in context for me. The way you did that is just so perfect. In section one hundred and four, so so there's a lot of stuff we, I can talk about in section one hundred and four, and there's a lot of things that I've marked up in section one hundred and four. And feel free to bend if you want to come back to it. But I think for me, it's it's mostly important just to realize that this was the end of the United Firm. That this was the reason for it was they didn't keep unity with it and that there were problems with trust and with how they viewed the poor. And and so this is what was this is what was seen as why the eighteen thirty three 
1834 persecutions happened. And then the last half of the, more than the last half of the section is just blessings are given or things given to eat to, to a, a bunch of different people from Sidney Rigdon to Martin Harris, um, Frederick G. Williams, Oliver Cowdery, John Johnson, Newell K. Whitney, and jo- even Joseph Smith. So there's just a lot of people who are mentioned here. They talk about the treasure, you know, the treasury is going to be built, uh, but the treasure is and, and why the treasury is going to be important. But is there anything that you had specifically, Ben, that you wanted to talk about and to cover in 104? So with 104, and you've brought this up before, and, and I just think in light of the Sermon on the Mount, this is a really good point here. I'm going to go with verse 17. For the earth is full, and there is enough and to spare. Yea, and I prepared all things, and have given unto the children of men to be agents unto themselves. At sort of at the root of this, this issue here that the saints had with, with not being able to, to unite and care for the poor is this concern with scarcity, right? Uh, like I said, you've brought this up before, that if I give too much, there won't be enough for me and my family. The Lord comes back and says, there is enough. You are my family. I'm providing for you. You can't give too much when you do it in the way that I have revealed to you, right? And so there's always this holding back, right? And when they they entered into this covenant and they didn't really intend to, to fully give of themselves. And so again, that preoccupation with scarcity, I think, is really that bottleneck, so to speak, or that hobbling that we can often experience on our, on our path to, to Zion. So another thing here with, with 104 that stood out to me, uh, let me find here. Oh, so, so all these blessings that it goes through, you know, and, and apportioning the, the stewardship to this person, then that person, that person. I was reading through it, you know, it kind of got a little bit repetitive. And I thought, oh, you know, this reminds me actually of back in Exodus when Moses, I believe it's Exodus, maybe it's Deuteronomy. I think he does it twice. Maybe it's Deuteronomy. Moses <laughs> goes through and he blesses all the different tribes of Israel, right? And he gives them different apportioned blessings, almost like stewardships. And this kind of reminded me of that. It was almost patterned after that, that this would be this is even a multiplicity of blessings. So I just kept thinking this is almost like Moses's pronouncement on, on the different tribes of, of their stewardship and their blessings that that would be had for each of them. Another thing with, uh, I think the last thing that I would say with 104 was this verse 59. Again, talking about uh, how they're supposed to gather funds and, and for particular purposes. It says, for the purpose of building up my church and kingdom on the earth and to prepare my people for the time when I shall dwell with them which is nigh at hand. And that phrase there, at hand, I had always taken to mean it's going to happen soon. I realized when I read it this time through that if something's at hand, it's right there. You can grab it anytime you need it, right? And and I would wager that most people's cell phones are always at hand, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they, they can grab their cell phone in, in under one second and have it open, right? It's at hand. They're ready to do that. And I just liked that phrase in the context of the Lord telling us he's always right there. If we wanted to, we could just grab it and have it, 
He's always right there. He's at hand. I thought that was a, a, a fresh and probably more meaningful way to conceptualize of that phrase there. Yeah, I like that. Moving into section 105, so a little bit of uh, back history is when uh, when Joseph is, it's June of 1830, 1834. <laughs> I, I, I blinked there for a minute, like, what year are we in? <laughs> it's June of 1834, and they're marching towards Missouri, and the idea is, is that they are going to be marched into Jackson County by the militia, by the Missouri militia, that Dunklin, the governor of Missouri, it's not Boggs yet, but Dunklin, that he's agreed and he sees that this is a travesty. He sees that they didn't have the legal ramifications in Jackson County to do what they needed to do. And he's going to agree to help the Mormons go in and then help them regain their lands, right? As the, the Latter-day Saints and Zion's camp are moving through it, an army of 200 people, <laughs> you know, even, mm-hmm. e- even though they were looking for, you know, they were looking for 500, an army of 200 people who are armed in this day and age doesn't send the right message. It just, right. it just, it sent the wrong message at every level. And so the newspapers, as Joseph would go through these towns, also they didn't split up their group. So when they went through a town, you had 200 people just marching through a town. <laughs> and so <laughs> it, it wasn't the best news optics. News travels fast. News traveled really fast. So newspapers started doing it. And, and so news was traveling faster than the saints. And, and it was fasting, traveling faster than Zion's camp. And so there were just a lot of different problems that just the presence of Zion's camp had. A lot of their, their goal was just to show up, to go in, to defend themselves. And that's just not how the optics looked. But you had a lot of really interesting stories too. You know, there's this one that I love um, that Bushman ends up calling the millennial ecology. But it's this concept where in camp one day there were some rattlesnakes, were like three rattlesnakes, and they went to go kill them. And Joseph rebuked them from killing the the rattlesnakes. And he said that when the lion lie down with the lamb and the venom of the serpent ceases. While man seeks to destroy and waste the flesh of beasts, waging a continual war against reptiles, let man first get rid of his destructive propensities, and then we may look for a change in the serpent's disposition. Now, I've thought a lot of time thinking about this verse and about the ramifications about how this can possibly work. And, and just the idea that Joseph was talking about man being the leading example in all of creation as to how to live and to work, that man has to get rid of his violent disposition first before the animal kingdom will follow suit. And wondered, is, is that what it means to build Zion? Is that how the lion will lay down with the lamb? That man gives up his violent disposition and that the animal kingdom follows. We have this uh, millennialist view in the church and it's created a lot of really good things it's also created some some parts in our way of thinking that are in our blind spot and one of the ways of thinking is that a millennial's point of view in this whole thing that the world is really bad right now and jesus is going to come and make it all better and the way he's going to make it all better is he's going to be more powerful than all the bad people he's going to kill all the bad people and then we'll get to live how jesus wants us to live we've talked about this before but the problem with that millennial way of thinking is it posits that number one, Jesus has, you know, that God hasn't given us a doctrine to be able to overcome evil right now. 
So that that's like problem problem number one. We don't have a theology strong enough or a, a doctrine or truth strong enough or authority strong enough to be able to combat evil. Number two, it's it posits that violence is the greatest good and so that Christ is the greatest destroyer so he can come and destroy the evil ones. He doesn't actually vanquish him or he doesn't actually persuade him. He doesn't do anything. He shows that his way of being is not strong enough to do that. Now, Latter-day Saints, we have a way of defending that, saying, well, even in the pre-existence, you know, you allow for agency, and people are going to use their agency, but they use their agency to being destroyed. And that's, I, I get that. But at the same time, the millennialist perspective of waiting around for a violent God to be able to kill the wicked shows that wickedness is stronger than righteousness. And that you need to be able to come and just kill the wicked people out so that righteousness can thrive and abide. It still demonstrates the wickedness is the most powerful thing there. And so in that way, millennialism has a way of creating a way of thinking where we expect things to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And it never really trains us to be able to accept or to be able to even work to creating things to get better and better and better and better. Because we're subconsciously waiting for Jesus to come back to fix things for us. When, with this thing with Joseph Smith, I'm, comes present for me, is that God is waiting for us to become a Zion-type people for him to come back to. That the way that this will work is that man can work now to lose his violent disposition now, and then he works to create a heaven on earth that's how he subdues the elements, is because in the face of violence, in the face of wickedness, the righteous are willing to die. They're willing to lay down, their, they're willing to beat swords into plowshares. They're not going to pick up muskets, they're not going to go pick up any violent implementations of destruction or of defense. They bring the truth of their witness and testimony to suffer and to sacrifice as Christ did. When Peter brings out his sword... Christ tells them to put it away, that those who live by the sword die by the sword, and the creator of the universe, the, the grand architect of it all, is the one who then walks himself intentionally to the cross. And he calls that all of those who call upon themselves by the name of Christ to do the same thing, and for the same reason that what Jesus has done for us in infinite and eternal ways, we do for each other in finite and temporal ways. Right? Right? And so we see that Zion's camp is almost like this transformational moment when they were on the fence 50-50. And, and so the violent rhetoric of going down, and, and Joseph was all about optics too. I mean, he was all about this pomp and circus. So they, they tried to dress themselves well. Joseph was all about titles of military titles. So he's, he's handing it, out it military like titles. like little boys sometimes, like playing military, <laughs> you know? Like. Almost kind of sort of. He's handing out titles and everyone's like, oh, I'm this title and I'm that title. And so he's handing out titles everywhere. And so everyone's got a position and a meaning and a title. And, and anyway, they end up going all the way down into Missouri and the governor is like, you know what? The optics are just not good. I can't defend you in Jackson. I'm not going to be able to keep the militia there. And if you go into there, it's going to be a bloodbath. By this time, the Jackson, the Jackson County militia has already been assembled and it, it rivals the 200 that the saints have. They know they're not going to go in and be able to take Jackson County. And so just, they're just about there. And then section 105 comes and section 105 is the section that disbands Zion's camp. 
And then as you know, there's a bunch of people who were like really ready for a fight. And, you know, and, and some of them actually will get it in 1838, several years later. But for some of these people, they were really looking for that fight. Joseph, I, I like Bushman's take on it because even Bushman is like, you know what? Joseph wasn't really at this time. He, it, this isn't violent rhetoric he's looking for. He's not looking for a fight. He's just looking to kind of go and reclaim his land. He was hoping that he could just march in with the governor, retake his land, and then rebuild it. But circumstances came about being what circumstances are. And so they had to disband Zion's camp. On the way back, they had a really terrible bout of cholera. Joseph never said, you know, he had his own personal opinion. He thought it had something to do with God's justice or vengeance for their disunity in Zion's camp, but he never purports a revelation on it. And then also in Zion's camp, he had had a few run-ins of disunity with one Sylvester Smith. Mm. And a couple of funny stories with Sylvester Smith is, yeah, Sylvester, he, he's kind of, seems like he has kind of a, a chip on his shoulder to begin with. But Joseph has- He's definitely portrayed as the hothead in any of the videos, right? Yeah, he's always yeah, the hothead in any of the videos. But in, uh, in this particular regard, Joseph has a dog that he takes with him that nobody likes. Nobody likes Joseph's dog. And Joseph also has, I think, I think, uh, Bushman said he had 24 bodyguards. <laughs> so, you know, it's, we're looking at like an, there's, it, was it, an, is that an eighth of the, of the people of Zion's camp or just his personal bodyguards? And so Joseph has this dog that just won't stop barking at anyone and is just not a friendly dog. And so Sylvester ends up saying something bad about the dog and Joseph gets upset and says something back to Sylvester. And so they start arguing back and forth. And then Sylvester says, I'm going to shoot your dog. And Joseph's like, if you shoot my dog, I'll come down and I'll whip you. And, and, and it just becomes a thing. <laughs> they go after each other. And this one moment ends up to another moment. And there's about a half a dozen of these. Until finally, when Joseph ends up back in Kirtland, there's a, a big falling out between him and Sylvester. Everybody's expecting Sylvester to leave the church because of just how much he he keeps on saying bad about Joseph. Uh, but he doesn't. He actually eventually writes a for an, an apology, and he sticks around to the church, which is really kind of an interesting uh, part of the that whole thing. But in getting into section 105, we have. Like you said, Ben, there's all of this talk about the army of Israel and going through and, and really reclaiming things. But then it, the, ambiguity, the ambiguity is there that we're like, well, how are we going to do it? And it never really answers that. It just seems like so much rhetoric to me. And, um, I, you know, I, I, again, I still grapple with what it is that these early saints, I, I, I'd like to to go back and maybe look at some more journals. How is it that they interpreted it? What what was their idea of what was going to happen? Were they going to show up and and line up in a line and and shoot other people to get them off their properties? That you know, is that really what they thought was going to happen? You know that you know Bushman talks about how Joseph wasn't really looking to that. You know, they they thought they'd take guns with them in, in case someone attacked them, but their purpose wasn't to attack anybody. It was to march in as, oh, these people really are organized, so we, we better get off their land type of thing, right? We get these little, we have this army marching with these guns, right? And then we get these little moments of things like this rattlesnake story where it's like, to me, sometimes it feels so out of place. It's like, we're literally marching to go, you know, 
defend our lands with guns against other people. We, we are prepared apparently to shoot other people. And here you are talking about not hurting rattlesnakes, right? <laughs> like, and <laughs> it, it, it's amazing. These are, these are amazing little anecdotes. These, these uh, sayings you know, and things like this always remind me of, of sort of the Islamic tradition because they have this whole body of, of scripture really it, called the Hadith or the sayings of, of the Prophet Muhammad. And we get these things a little bit from Joseph Smith, right? We get these, these anecdotal stories about him talking about these rattlesnakes and stuff. And, but, but in this context, you always just, it feels so out of place to me. Um, it's, it, it shines bright, you know, like, like this pearl of truth. And you're like, where did that come from? You know, in the middle of this army marching to, <laughs> to, to shoot people, you know, um, but, but it is good stuff. And, and there is, there's some some great uh, profundity to it there. So, yeah, here in section 105, some of the things that that stand out to me are like verse 14. Here we say we have, For behold, I do not require at their hands to fight the battles of Zion. For as I said in a former commandment, even so will I fulfill. I will fight your battles. Obviously, this is after the fact, after they've been disbanded, and you could take this multiple ways. You could take this as Joseph trying to craft the narrative of, oh, the Lord never really wanted us to fight at all anyway. Or you could take this as, well, you know, that's actually consistent with what the Lord's been saying for the past while now. Um, he, he told them to organize and go. He never told them to bring guns at all. He told them just to gather their people together and, and go and and get their lands back. Never told them to to bring guns. But then there's this ambiguity of well, he does say avenge your enemies and uh, and and stuff like that. So, do we bring guns? Do we not bring guns? <laughs> um, and then we get verse fourteen. I don't know. Is this, is this an example of the Lord like gaslighting them? You know, where it's like, whoa, why are you bringing guns? I didn't tell you to bring guns. It's like, well, you literally <laughs> told us to avenge ourselves of, of your enemies. So how are we supposed to do that? I don't know. But, um, but in any case, you know, uh, verse 14 does, does stand out here as, as sort of the standard, the, the marching orders for, for lack of a better term, after the fact of Zion's camp. The Lord says, I do not require at their hands to fight the battles of Zion. You are not required to fight Zion's battles. I will fight the battles. All you do is build up Zion. And what does verse 5 say? Zion cannot be built up unless it is by the principles of the law of the celestial kingdom. Otherwise, I cannot receive her unto myself. Principles of the Law of the Celestial Kingdom, we've talked about this in the context of, of Section 98 a bit. It's that, it's that righteousness, that, that moving towards, always moving towards a relationship with God, greater understanding of who he is and who we are in relation to him. I got to go sub in seminary this morning, which was so awesome. Hadn't taught in seminary for a while, so it was it was really great to to you know be discussing things with with teenagers again, and and we got to talk about a little bit about the concepts of of justification and sanctification, and we talked about how how righteousness is is about a direction, right? It, if we are are looking to God 
and 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 desiring to have a relationship with him to come further into a relationship with him and greater understanding of who he is that's the direction we're going in it doesn't matter where we are along the path that's all relative the direction is what denotes righteousness and if we're turned away from God and we're we're trying to go the other way and we're not looking to him we're not trying to create or understand a relationship there that that direction regardless of where we are along the path the direction where we're looking that's wickedness um and so I, I forget why I even brought that up in the context. Oh, oh, we were talking about the laws of the celestial kingdom. You know, <laughs> that, that the idea would be that what is our goal? You know, we're, if we are heading towards uh, building Zion, right, by the laws of the celestial kingdom, that's the direction we're facing. We're facing a relationship with God, the standard that Christ has given us. I take it as axiomatic that the Sermon on the Mount is is as close to a celestial standard as, as has been revealed to us. And if there's something more, then we are waiting to receive that once we we even begin to put into our lives the, the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. You know, as you were talking, Ben, I, I thought about that famous statement from <laughs> President Kimball. Um in the false gods we worship. So in, in 1976, for the first presidency message for the July edition, this was the bicentennial celebration of the Declaration of Independence. And for the first presidency message of that edition, President Kimball penned what is called the false gods we worship. And so it's a talk that's about idolatry. And I, I suggest everyone <laughs> to go Most read it. Most underquoted talk. Right, and it really should be like the most the most quoted. It was one of the best talks that uh, that is that's been given. There was a there was someone I I knew who I, I talked to at one point who knew Hugh Nibley and had said that Hugh Nibley had had thought this was one of the premier talks ever given from a, a prophetic voice, and he waited for the church to talk about this for decades, and instead the church gave it the great freeze. Is, is what I had heard. And you know, I can't verify that quote. So, but it was just someone who said they had personally talked with Nimbly about it. But in the talk, it says, We are a warlike people. You know, I'm going to actually start be- before that. It says, In spite of our delight in defining ourselves as modern and our tendency to think that we possess a sophistication that no people in the past ever had, in spite of these things, we are, on the whole, an idolatrous people, a condition most repugnant to the Lord. We are a warlike people, easily distracted from our assignment of preparing for the coming of the Lord. When enemies rise up, we commit vast resources to the fabrication of gods of stone and steel, ships, planes, missiles, fortifications, and depend upon them for protection and deliverance. When threatened, we become anti-enemy instead of pro-kingdom of God. We train a man in the art of war and call him a patriot, thus in the manner of Satan's counterfeit of true patriotism, pervert the Savior's teaching. Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. We forget that if we are righteous, the Lord will not suffer our enemies to come upon us, and this is a special promise to the inhabitants of the land of Americas, or he will fight our battles for us. 
he gives a couple of examples, and then he, con- he starts to conclude, What are we to fear when the Lord is with us? Can we not take the Lord at his word and exercise a particle of faith in him? Our assignment is affirmative, to forsake the things of the world as ends in themselves, to leave off idolatry and to press forward in faith, to carry the gospel to our enemies, that they might no longer be our enemies. You know, so as I've been reading in these sections about the Lord's enemies, I think it's interesting to note that this is during the time when the Twelve is formally reorganized, as it were, that their purpose and what they are was given more status as to being a more functional unit. That during this time of great militaristic and great social upheaval, where all of the call, all of the justification, all of the history, all of the identity was steeped in American warlike propaganda. That American identity, that Republican, just the basic core human response to violence is to fight back. That the Lord says that he will avenge from the enemies and that he will, he will take care of his enemies and he calls upon the armies of Israel to take care of his enemies. And then he tells the Zion's camp, who is just almost to Jackson County, to disband. And then he tells them, In verse 31, let my army become very great and let it become sanctified before me. What what purpose would God's army have in becoming sanctified? What's that going to do in the American militaristic construct of going out and destroying God's enemies? And then thinking about President Kimball to carry the gospel to our enemies that they might no longer be our enemies. Can it possibly be that we have gotten God so wrong through the entire course of human history? That we've ascribed to God this violent rhetoric and wrathful, vengeful God when he's been trying to reveal himself over and over and over as the God of the Sermon on the Mount? Is it that God destroys his enemies by being reconciled with them? That the construct of enemy is, in fact, a human construct? That God will use that language because we understand it? But does God really have enemies? And so part of that with section 105, I see, I see all of this strengthening my house strengthening the army of Israel. I will soften the hearts of the people as I did the heart of Pharaoh. I'll soften the government. You're not going to have to do what the government does. You're not going to have to do what the military thing does. I'm going to take care of that thing. But for you, be sanctified. I like what you said, Ben, about righteousness being a direction. Be focused on me. Be focused on me. Don't fear what anyone else can do. Structure and focus on taking the gospel message out because it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ where enemies 
melt away and we begin to see what was always already there present, that there are no enemies in front of us. They're simply our brothers and sisters who themselves haven't been made aware of their own worthiness before God. That they themselves are always already worthy before God. That they're already acting in their false self, the false perceptions of the world and the identities, that natural man that's talked about in the Book of Mormon. And who's going to possibly see the true self in the other? If not for those who follow the Beatitude path, who themselves have started to lose the scales of false identity. How are we possibly going to see the dignity and honor of behind the construct of enemy? Except for those who themselves have walked the Beatitude path and have emptied that po- with that poverty of spirit those false identities of the world, who've questioned the narratives of w- how society operates. To realize that the governments of men have always been built on the premise of violence and scarcity. But then God says, there is no scarcity and violence is not my way. Man and his economies and his politics work and function one way. And it seems to me, Ben, that God is just consistently telling us that that's not his way. And what takes is time for us to be able to come around to repent and to learn to see that one differently. You know, it is something that takes takes effort to see differently because you know, I, I struggle with the the use of militaristic terminology or rhetoric, even in the scriptures, you know, we see these words like army and avenge and, and stuff like this. And, and they, they bring the imagery is that of, of violence, right? Of war. And for the Lord to use something like that, to try to drive home a point of peace or of spreading the gospel, um, it can be really confusing, I think. And so I don't know necessarily how to reconcile that. I know we've discussed this uh, many times, this, this point of, of how, um, of, of why that is or, or, or that the fact that that is, that the, that imagery is used. And I know there's, there's different ways to explain it. You'd say, well, um, the prophet is using those words, uh, when, when the revelation is given such that, uh, because that's the language that that prophet has in order to to express the concept, or maybe it's that the Lord is offering us that that metaphor and then calling us to to beat that short that sword, even that metaphorical sword, into a plowshare, right? So I, there's different ways to to approach that, but um, I I have to say that I still struggle with with the use of that rhetoric even in scripture. To, to drive a point home, but I don't hesitate anymore to take that and reinterpret it um, by the lens of, of the Sermon on the Mount, to take something like when he says, let my army be very great, and, and not automatically assume he's talking about violence, to rather automatically assume that he's talking about um, a nonviolent army. A anti-Nephi Lehi go out to meet your enemy and 
you know, bow down before them and pray army, right? Verse 32 that follows this right up, that the kingdoms of this world may be constrained to acknowledge that the kingdom of Zion is in very deed the kingdom of our God and his Christ. Therefore, let us become subject unto her laws. That's like a quote at the end, right? He's he's paraphrasing. We got a, a, a semicolon. It might should be a colon. And there, we've got quotes here of the people who are seeing the kingdom of God and recognizing how it operates, that the army is not one that bears any weapons. The army is one that bears the gospel of love and peace. And that's how it operates in the world. Last time when we discussed section 98, you know, Shiloh, you asked the question, the rhetorical question, what would it be like if as a church we really operated this way in our relationships with others? That we really, truly were constantly forgiving and bearing testimony and reaching out to those that attack or offend us and not returning, not avenging, not reviling at all. And what would happen? I think 32 is what would happen. At least this is what the Lord tells us it could be. That the kingdoms of this world may be constrained to acknowledge, constrained by the power of our testimony, not by force or threat of violence, but by the power of the testimony, constrained to acknowledge that the kingdom of Zion is in very deed the kingdom of our God and his Christ. Therefore, let us become subject to her laws. This is the way we want to live. We see the way that you're doing it. We want to be part of that. Yeah. I also, you know, that difficulty in, in the violent rhetoric or in the militaristic, the, the rhetoric of armies. You know, what do we do with that? And I think for me, in, in a lot of ways, that's been the motivator for part of that aspect of love in, in recording these and in, in, in taking the time of studying and of, of coming to these discussions and, and learning to see the scriptures automatically in a new way. Because usually when we sit down with the scriptures, we, we bring the complexity of our culture, our society, our language, our experiences, all of these things that we don't even really ever analyze about ourselves. We bring all of that into our scriptural interpretation. And that influences the way that we read the scriptures. And it takes a lot of time to be able to take a different premise of peace. What we've called the the Sermon on the Mount hermeneutic. You know, Gregory Boyd is a is a Christian evangelical. He talks about the cruciform hermeneutic to see and interpret scripture in terms of the cross and of, of Gethsemane. And that takes time. You know, I, I think about Martin Luther King and, the, and I think we we brought this up last week. To act nonviolently, they had to train the violence out of the people. They had a they had a had set up entire like mock restaurants and places where they would do sit-ins just so that the people who would go do the actual sit-ins of these restaurants that they could actually have practice of people treating them poorly so they didn't turn so so that they could actually go into real life situations. It had to the violent way of responding to life had to be trained out of them to be nonviolent. 
And so, yeah, what do we have to do to train ourselves? Because in a lot of ways, this when we read these militaristic passages, it's hard. It, it, it is hard. And, and, and I too, just like you, what you said, Ben, I, I, I mirror that in that it's becoming much, much easier to come to this and just automatically see the nonviolent army. But that hasn't come naturally. <laughs> I've, had, I've had to work a lot on that one. <laughs> Got to reprogram the narrative, right? Yeah. And so here at the very end, uh, Joseph is telling the, the people in Missouri what, what they should do. It's like, the army's leaving. What do they do now? And again, I say unto you, sue for peace. Not only to those that have smitten you, but also to all people. And lift up an ensign of peace and make a proclamation of peace unto the ends of the earth. And make proposals for peace unto those who have smitten you, according to the voice of the Spirit which is in you. And in all things shall work together for your good. You know, that whole working together for your good, I think, goes back to what you had talked about before. About the... uh, about tribulations working together for our good. I think that's a really great commentary to apply there. But at the end of everything, sue for peace. So how often do we really sue for peace? How often do we really work in peace times about staying peaceful? And then so that when we come into those moments of conflict or of war times, we actually act in moments and we proclaim peace and renounce war like we're commanded to in 98, section 98. Because if we're only promoting peace in peacetime, and whenever war comes, war always comes with its justifications. There's, I, I can't think of a war that we fought in the last 200 years that hasn't been without its justification. And so either we have to conclude that all of our wars are just and all of them were necessary, and all of them were the last-ditch effort, or we have to conclude that there's something about renouncing war and proclaiming peace that we just haven't quite tapped into yet. You know, in the broader historical context here of, of why it was that, that this army, so to speak, of men was sent to, to redeem Zion, they ended up doing basically nothing and, and coming back. And then we have these statements at the end that are super, sue for peace, I'll fight your battles, Zion will be redeemed when you live by the laws of the celestial kingdom, things like that. You know, it reminds me of, of something you've quoted a couple times. I don't remember who it was that that told the story, but they, they talked about how it came to a fork in the road and they they felt like they should go one way and they went down that way and it was a dead end. And and so then they came back and they went the other way. And, and the, uh, it was a father and the son, I think. And the son turns to the father and says, well, why did we feel to go that way if it was the wrong way? And, uh, you know, the, the father's wisdom and commentary on that is something to the effect of, well, um, now we absolutely know that this way we're going is the right way. <laughs> um, because we went down the way and, and found out that it was, it was the wrong way. And so we have that assurance and that sometimes the Lord blesses us with that, that here we have this, these, uh, people who marched, uh, and, uh, to redeem Zion and they found out that was the wrong way, right? They didn't end up having to actually shoot, kill anybody, but they found out that was the wrong way to go about it. And they found it out through experience. So they come back and out of these, a good majority of those who then are ordained apostles and become some of the early leaders of the church, 
you know, come out of these people who have been on Zion's camp and have learned this lesson, right? So to speak, we say they've learned it, but you know, then they end up having to learn it again, right? In Missouri, of all places, all over again. <laughs> but I, I just, I just thought that this might, this might possibly be an example of something like that, you know, that that they were allowed to to go down that road to find out that that was the wrong road, right? Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Well, do you have anything else to add about Section 105? Nope. All right, me either. That's awesome. Well, everyone, thank you for listening. If you have any thoughts, let us know what your thoughts are. What uh, what have you pulled out of Zion's camp? What are some of your thoughts about... Uh, so Ben and I, we've talked about our difficulties in these four chapters. And these invoking the military and, and war aspects, it's it's interesting that we do that. It's interesting that we've always done that. It's in, and it's interesting that so much of Scripture is focused on on war. What do you think? What uh, what lands for you? What uh, what have you found that works in in changing the way that you see the world and you see things more peacefully and peaceably to be able to renounce war and proclaim peace in in your own lives. And yeah, really interested for you to share that and to get some of those messages in as far as, as what that means for you and how that's uh, and how that changes for you. So until next week, then I'm Shiloh Logan. I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening. 